Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. I'm Alan. And I'm Rachel. And I'm excited because it's almost migration season, you guys. And, um, you know, that does mean, unfortunately, that we are about to lose our precious time with <laughs> the winter birds that are here. And so I thought... What better time to talk about the birds that we're about to lose when people still have a chance to go see them? Aww. That's right. We're talking birds this week. Who would have guessed? Birds. I told Me. you under 200 grams. Yeah, you're right. I <laughs> had like three different rodents on deck, literally three. And then I almost did one of them. And I was like, wait, I just talked about peripherals. We should do something besides rodents for, yeah, this episode. And... um. For for this episode, we are going to talk about this enigma oh. <laughs> that is one very common but specialized feeder bird in the Great Plains. And uh, they'll probably be gone, according to the data that we have, by April 19th. So there's still plenty of time to find them, especially at bird feeders. Um, and if you live around, like, the Nebraska down south to Texas area, I would encourage you to look for them before they're gone. But you can only find them in those very specific and narrow places here in the Great Plains. Okay. Okay. Do you have any idea what I could possibly be talking about? Is it juncos? Nope. But they are somewhat related to juncos. Is it Harris's sparrows? That's what I was going to say. It's, yep. Okay. It's Harris's sparrows. <laughs> My favorite sparrow. <laughs> They're good. It's funny because uh, every time we have gone on bird walks recently, one of you guys has noticed the Harris's sparrows like singing mm -hmm. before me. And I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, they deserve a little bit of pause and they deserve a little bit of attention because they are really freaking insane. I think Nicole knows a little bit about this because you're just so eager to talk about it today. I love them. They're, They're so cute. Their song is so good. Like, it's it's like so simple. It. It they is. just go, wee, wee, wee. Just the same pitch. Like, yeah. three, three, what, what is it? Like, three to five? It's one two to, to five. four max. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I yeah. usually, yeah, I feel like I usually hear two. Yeah. Like pretty commonly, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Just two whistles, same pitch, just yes. like yeah, you know? yeah. They're so cute. It's easy to overlook the song, mm -hmm. and uh, like seeing the bird itself. Like they, they're not really like an overlooked sort of bird. I mean, they are a sparrow, and so I guess in that sense maybe they're overlooked. But I mean, they're noticeable. They're big, hefty sparrows, yeah. mm -hmm. so you know they stand out, and they have a really bold black bib that goes yeah. up into their face, kind of like a house sparrow, except their bill is pink. Mm -hmm. So they look really noticeably different from other stuff, and mm -hmm. they're pretty easy to pick out in a flock. And um, yeah, they're they're it turns out uh, a really cool bird just hiding in these winter feeder flocks. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, my outline today, I guess, is uh, to talk about the things that we don't know about them first. Because this is the part of the Harris's Sparrow story that I think is interesting. It's not that like, oh, they're a really cool bird and we know so much like neat stuff about them. It's, it's that they are enigmatic. We don't know a lot of really basic things about this bird that is so freaking common. Um, and that is insane to me. And uh, then we'll kind of talk about the things that we do know about them and other uh, reasons why they are pretty neat. Um, so yeah, we're, we're gonna just get started. So what we don't know <laughs> about the Harris's Sparrow. Are you ready? On the introductory page of Cornell Lab of Ornithology's Birds of the World publication on the Harris's Sparrow, there are two pretty shocking sentences. <laughs> uh, quote, only a handful of scientists have studied the Harris's Sparrow. Prior to breeding studies by Normand that began in 1992, Little was known about even the most basic aspects of its breeding biology. Pre-1992. Yes. Yeah, okay. That was like the first time. And to this day, a lot of the data that I do have about Harris's sparrows that I'm able to tell you about was the study done in 1992 or 1996. Wow. Dang, okay. Yeah. So 
Uh, <laughs> not a lot of research no. has been done on them. Yeah. And actually, this is so insane to me. To this day, we have literally no population estimates from their breeding grounds. And we consider breeding bird survey data for this species inadequate. So our only information about the population of Harris's sparrows comes from Christmas bird counts. That's it. So just the... Interesting. Okay, so just they've only really been able to study winter migratory populations winter flocks yeah they haven't really studied them in their breeding season not on a population level like we we have mm-hmm. studies about some of their breeding behaviors and again from like 1992 mm-hmm. um but apart from that like there's no population surveys there's no uh data about the species and like how they're doing or and it's really difficult to study winter flocks of birds because i mean they're mixed with other species, their behaviors are really different, they're kind of spread out a lot more. So usually when we're talking about, you know, identifying populations of animals, especially for conservation purposes, we're looking at them in their breeding grounds because we know that we can get a good head count during that period of time. And during the winter, they're just, you know, doing, it's hard to keep track of them. Yeah, for sure. And that's why, again, the only data that's coming from Harris's Sparrows, like population data, isn't even from like winter surveys. It's specifically Christmas bird counts. Wow. So everyone needs to do their uh, Christmas bird counts and yeah. get into. Uh, Go out there, yeah. do your Christmas bird counts. Look for <laughs> Harris's sparrows. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, don't they do, they do great backyard bird count too? Uh-huh. Would be says this is a feeder bird. Yeah. That would work. Mm-hmm. Um, that just happened, what, like last weekend? It was really t- recently. Yeah. yeah. And so that would also look at Harris's Sparrow's population data. But the, the issue that we have with like Christmas bird counts and stuff like the Great Backyard Bird Count mm-hmm. is that we don't know how reliable that data is. Like yeah. that has not been studied. We don't know if that's truly an effective way of tracking population numbers or getting an accurate read on populations. So... That plays into our understanding of their conservation, you know, that like the single point of data or like two single points of data that we do have may not even be a good picture of what's going on. Yeah. Especially as more people get into citizen science, like you're going to kind of (laughs) artificially inflate those numbers just because more people are looking for them. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, if a lot of the birds are coming to like feeders and stuff like that, we don't know how artificially inflated those numbers are and stuff. It's just, yeah hard to gauge if that data is to be relied on though for the christmas bird counts at least there has been a significant downward trend in harris's sparrows population numbers since the 1970s and again we have very little information from its breeding ground to analyze to back that up or to even figure out why that might be if it's true okay yeah i believe it (laughs) (laughs) yeah for what it's worth um so why is that and why are we having such a hard time figuring that out? Well, that's because of its insane migration. I have an abundance map on here. So basically, they breed about as far north in North America as you can possibly get into yeah. extremely remote Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, that's a very sparsely populated area of the world up there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then when they migrate south, they go to a very specific band of the Great Plains region, uh, which is about like, hang on, I'm trying to figure out my geography, like which side of Iowa is that? (laughs) (laughs) The western side of Iowa, whatever, hang on. (laughs) Just listen to states. Um, it's like a bit of Iowa and Nebraska, and then it like arcs down into like South Central Texas. Yeah. So it's just this really narrow band of the Great Plains that they go to. Um, so right now they're wintering in the Central Great Plains region. And actually there are, uh, according to population estimates that we have from Christmas bird counts and also like U.S. Geological Survey, um, I think that they were analyzing Christmas bird count data. Anyway, there appear to be two maybe hot spots for wintering Harris's sparrows. Those hot spots are number one in north central Texas, between two specific rivers, the Brazos and the Red Rivers. The other one, which according to USGS is the highest winter concentration of them in the world, 
is in south central Kansas near the Arkansas River. Dang. Wait, that's where we are. That's yeah. where we are. <laughs> yeah, this is the best place in the world to see Harris's sparrows. <laughs> nice. Isn't that wild? That's probably why, that. at least for me, I didn't really think of them as super remarkable when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it only really occurred to me that it was kind of insane that we have them when people were visiting Wichita and they were like, oh my God, I saw a Harris's sparrow. And I was like, yeah, man, they're <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's because we are the best place in the world to see them. Thing. Yeah. Isn't that insane? It is kind of them. insane. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good Nicole, for us. So pleased. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, this range, uh, they they do obviously migrate, and while they're migrating, they actually can wander quite a bit. Um, if a vagrant Harris's sparrow ends up somewhere insane like Massachusetts or Florida, it is at least somewhat likely to go. Oops. <laughs> oh, well, I really messed this one up and find a bird feeder and just like hunker down there for the winter and just yeah. like weather yeah. it through right, <laughs> right there at that one little feeding station mm-hmm. and then try to find its way back to everybody else later. <laughs> That's amazing. Dang. Yeah. Um, so their range is really controlled. And I, I know this was like supposed to be the things we don't know, but I just want to explain like why we don't know very much about their their situation mm-hmm. um so when they're super far north their range is pretty controlled by the border of forests so this species avoids straight up forests and dense forested areas and of mm-hmm. course like the further north you go there's a lot of uh coniferous sort of boreal forests and then there's a transition zone where the trees begin to thin out and you transition into straight up tundra because the trees can no longer grow that far north. Mm-hmm. That's where these guys like to hang out. And uh, so where you see those borders of trees is like where they can no longer thrive. So specifically in that margin between tundra and forest, like that transitional area? Yes. Is they, their preferred habitat? They prefer that transitional area. Um, in fact... Uh, Actually, I have a whole thing about their habitat use kind of fascinates me because they are like very obviously an open spaces species, but they are very rarely found outside of areas with trees. So they are looking for transition zones. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they avoid dry short grass prairie when they're down here in the winter. They avoid straight up woods. They have been seen to use tall grass prairie in Kansas, but specifically not use tall grass prairie in Oklahoma. Hmm. And uh, they seem to hang out most often in agriculture fields, quote, weed patches. This is from a study in the 1960s, so they could call <laughs> things like, you know, native habitat weed patches back then. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You think people don't still do that? <laughs> oh, they, they for sure do. Oh, God. Um, uh, but also bad in my Uh, What we would look at and refer to as badly managed pastures where there's a lot of succession occurring and like a lot of cedars and like brushy areas and stuff like that. That's the kind of area that they like. And in their breeding range, they usually have some trees around and the density of those trees is very important. Like it has to be not too many trees, but a few trees. And in fact, uh, their like survival instinct when they're threatened, their response is to fly up into trees. Uh, there are some birds where they would fly down into cover. Mm-hmm. Harris's sparrows go upwards and look for tree cover. Okay. So that's the kind of place that they're looking for. Uh, they also seem to really like streams and shelter belts, probably because of all of that brushy cover. I have a couple of pictures of what those like habitat types would look like. So the first one is, I don't know, maybe you guys can describe. I mean, that's a picture from Kansas. <laughs> yeah, right. just yep. like an invading cedar, yeah, <laughs> nastiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Similar. yeah. Right? Like our our instinct when we see this is like, wow, that's a really bad grassland, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's their favorite grass. Like that's what they're looking for. They mm-hmm. want that stuff. So, ooh, so if we start taking better care of our grasslands, will we lose even more Harris's sparrows? It's a great question, isn't it? <laughs> like, I guess we can't know um, the 
extent to which the fragmentation or like the mm -hmm. the encroachment of grassland habitats has had on the species then because it would have yeah. a you know like there are sometimes positive effects that happen when when we consider like overall ne uh, negative ecological impact sometimes yeah. there are positive effects we talked about that a little bit with the henslow sparrow too mm -hmm. So I, that's an interesting question, but it's not something we can know at this point because they yeah. were not researched at, uh, exactly. robustly. Yeah. Or, and we yeah, haven't really done studies on habitat use in the winter. Like we've, we have observations and right. that sort of thing from like the sixties. Um, and, uh, there has been like pretty detailed analyses of their breeding ground habitat from that one study in like the 90s. Uh, so we know like what density of canopy cover do they seem to prefer and like how their habitat use maybe changes through the summer. But yeah, we have a lot of open-ended questions about, you know, for example, when deforestation is happening up north because of fires and how those impact Arctic environments, mm -hmm. we don't know how that affects them. We don't know fragmentation data. We don't know... Yeah, so many different impacts are just kind of invisible to us for this species. Yeah. Interesting. It's very, very interesting. Mm. I also just love this concept, by the way, that it's like, you know, again, this is this looks like poor habitat yeah. <laughs> to me. Yeah, for sure. But it kind of forces us to think outside of like the boxes that we kind of put on mm -hmm. habitats and ecosystems because uh, – the natural world is a matrix of different habitat types and different stages of development. And for this species, they're looking for this area where it's like starting to get foresty, but it's not a forest and it can't be just an open plain. And if they don't have that like middle ground, then there's mm -hmm. no space for them because species develop to use all of those different stages of development in ecosystems. For sure. Yeah. True, true. I just like it. I like any time I'm forced not to think in a black and white way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I I was reading about uh, Christmas tree farms and how they can create habitat for certain birds. And I want to say that Harris' sparrow might have been one of them, honestly. Um, because, yeah, we think of, I mean, it's just a monoculture of yeah. one type of tree <laughs> that probably isn't even native. Um and we're like, wow, that's really bad. But actually, there's a lot of birds that use those very extensively. So yeah. 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 Question. Yeah. Answer. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. There are virtually no breeding site surveys for these birds. No. Is that a factor of logistics because it is so extreme? Or is it... It's my understanding that this bird was, as you said, enigmatic and also very elusive in the sense that it wasn't really known where they were going when they migrated. Yeah. Like their actual location of their breeding sites, that was also not a known factor until recently. Is and, that until the nineties? Yeah. Until the nineties. Like there, there has been of course uh, information about where they appear to be located because even though they are in pretty remote places. People do observe them around. Sure. They just maybe didn't necessarily observe breeding behaviors right. or take a, a close look at it. And I, I do think a lot of that is just logistics. Like they are in such an isolated part of the world that it's hard to get up there and study them and survey them. Um, and it's a pretty broad range too. So, But then in the 90s when, when studies did begin or – they were conducted rather. I don't know that they really continued. That's the issue, right? Um, but when those first studies were conducted, uh, we gained a lot of information about their breeding habits and stuff. But we still like we've never seen their nest be constructed. Like there's still a lot of holes there that have not been filled in. And those studies were conducted in very specific areas. So a lot of like the breeding surveys involve information that says, you know, they are reportedly abundant on this one island way up north, but we have no data on their breeding habits there or whether they're breeding there or how abundant they are. We just know that they are reportedly, according to just basic observations, abundant there. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's wild. But like quantitatively, not very much is known. I think the studies they did in the 90s were in like Manitoba and 
It was like a, a pretty specific region of Canada. Okay. Cool. So even yeah. like a lot of we're forced to extrapolate then from that area and piece together how they must be using other parts of that northern range. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Yeah. They're cryptic little birds, too. I mean, like, as far as nesting and stuff goes, they are ground nesters, and they're pretty cryptic about it. And so, I mean, it's it's just extra hard to track the behaviors of those types of little cryptic ground sparrows, too. They're ground nesters, but their instinct is to fly to trees. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. they're specialized in this really specific type of habitat. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, uh... They nest on the ground sense. under brush yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Right. So. What kind of predators do they have? Is ground like squirrels. <laughs> ground squirrels? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. I mean, squirrels do them. eat birds. Yeah. Yeah. They eat their nests and stuff. Yeah. 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 That's kind of a weird thing to think about. Yeah. I know, right? Squirrel yeah. predation. Squirrels but, were yeah. called out specifically as being one of their top predators. Wow. <laughs> Um, Amazing. Okay. So I guess they're probably like, you know, just running away from stuff that's on the ground typically. And that's why they're escaping up into trees. Like they're not quite as worried about birds getting them, which is interesting because birds for sure get sparrows. Mm-hmm. Right. I was thinking like foxes and weasels, but squirrels. Yeah. They like bird eggs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even a deer will eat a bird. <laughs> you know, we've talked right, about we've this. We've talked yes, about this. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Things oh, don't God. fall in that. Uh, yeah. The dietary lines uh, <laughs> strictly. All right. Okay. All right, so to conclude on what we don't know, here's the things that we wish specifically we were studying about Harris's sparrows. And by we, I mean just scientists, people who like birds and like to know these things. We want to know these things. Number one, a plan. We need, we need any plan for monitoring <laughs> populations during the breeding season. It just We need to develop one. There yeah. isn't one. Okay. Number two, we need to find out whether the Christmas bird count data does actually accurately track population trends because if we can figure that out Mm -hmm. then we can at least get started on saying like hey this decline that we're noticing in harris's sparrows is legitimate and we can back that up scientifically and make a better case for doing something about it right um i do think right now it's kind of being treated as though it's likely accurate because this species has been identified as at risk by a number of both governmental organizations and non-governmental orgs like bird people um it's on continental watch lists and it's a priority species for some regions both in canada and for fish and wildlife service etc but you know we still just need more info to justify listing them and that sort of thing so it is being considered uh for various listings it's already considered at risk and near threatened okay based on the (laughs) the limited cbc data that we have Mm -hmm. yep Uh, The other big question that we have is about that habitat flexibility. So scientists are interested in learning about that flexibility. Specifically, for example, are they screwed if they lose wintering habitat? Uh, How dependent are they on bird feeders since they seem to really prioritize going to feeding stations? And then we also just have really basic questions about their wintering stuff, Um, like predation, competition, flock composition, et cetera, of wintering birds. So um, all of that does affect their habitat flexibility too. So is the is the concern in the um, – like okay, so the, obviously we know what's happening on our end of it in terms of their habitat. We have woody encroachment, like succession happening. Yeah, if here. it gets too succeeded, then it, you know, c- kicks them out. Right. Okay, so is the concern then – that their breeding habitat would also contract because uh, I'm assuming you get like woody encroachment into tundra as climate warms. Is that what would that's happen? That's that's one issue. I think that there are other concerns too. Uh, uh, fire frequency in tundra environments was a specific concern that was listed, and, and there's only. Like, as far as conservation concerns, they only could identify two because we just have so many holes in information. And one of those two concerns was fire threatening deforestation in the regions of tundra where they live. Okay. Where if it takes out too many trees, like Arctic environments have such a hard time recovering. Um, I don't fully know the fire ecology of tundra environments, but for some reason that is a threat that's been identified for breeding grounds. Possibly, okay. possibly. But we don't, again, we don't understand exactly what their relationship to that situation is. We're just using our best 
extrapolations. Yeah. So they're anticipating more severe, a more severe Mm -hmm. fire in the forest, the forest factor of the. Yeah. More so than the, uh, would be, okay. Yeah. And maybe in that transition zone specifically. It all sounds bad. would kill off trees and yeah. So isn't that interesting? It is. Yeah. Yeah, Especially because it's like, again, an open spaces bird that does depend on open spaces for its ecology. Mm -hmm. But for them, the deforestation is an issue. Like total deforestation. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's so good. Oh, so good. <laughs> anyway, yep. That's the stuff we don't know. Amazing. Do you know some more stuff we do know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. They're cute. Yeah. They're cute. It's a known fact. <laughs> they got a little pink it's bill. beautiful. They got a pink bill. Yeah. How many sparrows? Well, a lot of sparrows do have pink bills. But like, not like that. Yeah. And they got a little little like black face and a little black bib. Mm-hmm. So then their pink bill is like extra pinky, you know? Yeah. It's like it's very pinky. that's a pink bill. Yeah. Like Jungos. <laughs> no. I love them. Um, can I tell you guys some phylogeny stuff? Because it's like my special interest and I think it's fun. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, cool. Um <laughs> so the Harris sparrow is in the genus Zonotrichia, which is one of my very favorite sparrow genuses. Uh genera, whatever. Um and the Zonotrichia sparrows include like white-throated and white-crowned sparrows. Mm-hmm. So that's like their little like family group. They're like a monotypic little family. You know, they're all truly related. Um, and they share a common ancestor that they diverged from 1.2 million years ago. Dang. That's recent. That's really recent. It's also older than humans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I just want to point out that like Homo sapiens... 200,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These guys started diverging um, back when Homo erectus was the one walking the planet. You know, like that's pretty, that's pretty freaking neat. Yeah. Like they were diverging. They they were becoming white crowned and Harris sparrows back when humans were like not quite humans and starting to become humans. I think that's neat. Okay. It is neat. Thank you. It is. <laughs> so anyway uh the white crowned sparrow is the harris sparrow's closest relative so when we're doing extrapolations we often look at white crowned sparrows and say eh, we could probably learn something about harris sparrows from them um they have similar like habits like oh the flying up into trees thing white crowned sparrows also do that which is pretty neat yeah um but the harris sparrow of this little family tree seems to be the most basal um uh worse way of saying that would be to say that they're the more primitive one or the more closely like they diverged first basically okay 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 yeah all right okay so anyway that's my special interest rabbit hole let's get (laughs) into other stuff um so harris's sparrows pretty distinct um in case you weren't familiar the males and females are similar so they have like the same markings and stuff there are technically differences in how big the bib is or what or whatever but if you're looking at a flock of them they all look the freaking same, okay? The immature birds are the ones that, like, have a pretty weak slash non-existent bib and look really pathetic. So oh, that's just wow. babies, not females. The The males and females look the same. Okay. Okay. <laughs> kind of harsh on the little ones there, though, aren't I mean... There's a reason for that, <laughs> and we will get to it, I guess. Okay. Yeah, okay. This is, like, one of the very... For some freaking reason, out of all the studies we've done on Harris's sparrows, which, again... Not very many. Only a handful of studies, right? One of them was all about their stupid bibs. <laughs> and it's really good. So okay. we'll get to that. Um, so uh, as far as like their like behaviors and their habits and stuff, they are one of the winter sparrows that you see on the ground all of the time. When they're not at a bird feeder, they're in the ground. They're like kicking through leaf litter. You know that thing that you see like white-throated sparrows do and like robins and stuff where they just like stand on the ground and they go like... And they, like, kick uh-huh. all the leaves backwards. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> it's it so good. Harris sparrows do that. That's their primary mode of foraging, oh. both up north and down south. It's very good. It's... <laughs> it makes me happy. Yeah. Um, so that's what they're doing. And compared to white-crowned sparrows, they tend to do their foraging in much drier open habitats, like, pretty significantly. Like, this is, again... We have quantitative data about this, at least in the breeding grounds. And white-crowned sparrows spent 59% of their foraging time out in open areas away from cover. 
And white crowned sparrows, it was only 12% of the time. Oh, wow. So that's a significant difference. Harris's sparrows are going out like far from cover to forage for food. Bold. Very bold little dudes. Um, they eat a lot of fruits and seeds and young spruce needles and <laughs> bugs. And <laughs> what are you laughing at me? I don't know. It's you just... were just saying it just so cute. Yeah. I love them. They're well, because like you're uh, this. A lot of this data comes from their breeding grounds mm-hmm. because we just can't we can't survey them in the winter. Yeah. We just know they go to bird feeders, right? There's no bugs, also. and there's no bugs. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like from the breeding grounds. So I'm just like you know you got to picture them like up in the north, like they're eating crowberries and like mm-hmm. chasing bugs in the tundra. It's so cute. Living their best life. Yeah, mm-hmm. eating little baby spruce needles. Like it's very cute. <laughs> and even, uh, hmm. what? Yeah. Yeah, little, like little like fresh green ones. No, yeah, I know. I just I'm, I'm trying to picture like a uh, flavor. Mm. I guess. I saw people know. on TikTok making those yeah. into like jam or something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Is this the jam with the full pine tones in it? Just <laughs> that, that might be what I was thinking of. <laughs> that really upset me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, don't sure knock it, it till you try. No, I'm yeah. sure it's fine. It's yeah. just it's I I have trouble wrapping it's my brain lot. around it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a lot. The texture seems mismatched in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um so like a lot of birds, uh their diet shifts to more bugs during the summer because there's more bugs emerging in the winter or what in the arctic uh sorry i just <laughs> my brain put winter in there instead of arctic so we sorry i think it's... it should be winter up there because it's north yes but it's not it's not it's not they have it's seasons. warm <laughs> they, they do have seasons <laughs> um and I just wanted to point this out because this study uh, specifically mentioned that because they're spending more time chasing bugs as summer goes on, it means that they're out in like the open tundra areas more. And at least where this study was conducted, they described that area as Harris's sparrows darting around and like eating bugs off of uh, these tussock muskeg tundra areas, like just out in hummocks of cotton grass, just mm. chasing bugs around on the ground. They're not like catching them in the air. They're like, you know, grabbing them off leaves and stuff. And <laughs> I just think that that's really cute. You know, like big old, big old like barrels of cotton grass. Barrels <laughs> these yeah. big cotton grass. <laughs> these big like tussocks, you know, like out in this like muskeg. Like, yeah, just like, yeah. Chasing bugs around in it. It just, it's really cute. Amazing. It's very nice. It makes me smile. Makes me want to be a Harris's sparrow. Me too. Yeah. All you have to worry about is squirrels. (laughs) Which is such a strange thing to worry about. Um, Squirrels, cold-blooded killers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They are, during the breeding season, at least pretty solitary, monogamous during breeding but, of course, they flock up in the winter with their own species and multi-species groups. Not super uncommon for birds. That's pretty standard. And among their own groups of their own species, they do have clear dominant structures, which appear to be related to their black throats. Okay. Okay. That's but not the thing. in the way that you're thinking. Oh. Maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll see if you're okay. thinking what I'm thinking. <laughs> okay. So, we know this because, again... One of the only freaking studies we've done about Harris's sparrows involved taking a bunch of Harris's sparrows and like dyeing their feathers oh. and also pumping them full of testosterone <laughs> <laughs> to oh, see no. what happened. Okay. Um, which I think, you know, that's fascinating. So they were trying to see how that affected their social lives, and it did. So it turns out that their black throats are indeed a social signal. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like it signals anything to Harris's sparrows within classes of age and sex. So, like, if you've got, like, all old females, mm-hmm. the throat patches mean nothing. If you've got all young males, the throat patches mean nothing within those groups. Mm-hmm. It only signals across groups. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason, the reason is that the darker birds tend to be older birds and so if you're a dark bird that means you're older and you're more grizzled (laughs) (laughs) and you're like oh i probably shouldn't pick on that guy so i'm gonna avoid him or her and uh then if you're like a little baby sparrow you're like 
oh, I'm going to get bullied by that older sparrow. So like I'm it affects the way that they treat each other like across ages. Yeah. Right. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically it's just a visual marker of how easy it is to bully you. Okay. So just an age and maturity thing more so than yes. like a breeding. Yes. It's not like a, like, well, they, they wouldn't know about breeding success anyway, because they haven't studied <laughs> Yeah, <that>. exactly. <laughs> yeah, we so. don't even know about extra pair maternity or anything like that. Like, yeah. Right. So it's, it's just a matter of like social dominance. And, um, a lot of it is about avoiding getting into confrontations so it's just like hey that guy's got a dark throat patch so i'm going to avoid have avoid having a confrontation with them and so it just kind of like helps them avoid fights hmm. also the like sort of pattern of blotches there which is like really unique to individual sparrows and can help you tell them apart it's like a very unique pattern for each bird that's very recognizable that also helps them recognize like how to not pick fights with each other because they'll be like oh that's the guy that beat me up the other day and it's really obvious <laughs> so like i'm for sure avoiding him you know mm -hmm. it's so it's yeah it's about you know keeping the peace nice picking the fights that you can handle so they've they've studied okay not only that they distinguish socially but also like they recognize each other yes. pattern wise yes they've studied that yes that yeah is... that was part of the pattern whoa and uh, you can artificially uh, inflate a bird's success uh, by taking like a young bird and dyeing their feathers darker mm -hmm. and uh, taking an older bird and dyeing them darker or whatever like that that will show the other birds like oh that guy's like knows what he's doing and I'm just gonna avoid him or I don't recognize him so like now he's scary like yeah yeah, yeah. that's cool <laughs> I like that that is cool that's uh, neat and then you know who is safe to approach um, also related to the study. Uh, they did pump birds full of testosterone to see how that affected them. Sure. And it turns out testosterone on its own did absolutely nothing. So it literally okay. didn't matter how uh, testosterone fueled these birds were. Um, that didn't affect their dominance at all. It was uh, mostly markings. It's all visual. Superficial. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it is interesting. It is, yeah. 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 It's like if you have a bunch of dark patches, like I'm – going to take that into consideration much more than my personal experience with you mm -hmm. and the patches are driven by age yes it's not a reflection of diet or no. body mass or it's age. so it's just like a purely hierarchical <laughs> yeah. society of based on old old guys, old guys beating up young guys nice old and dudes. i say that to mean like all the sexes like yes, this yes, is a <laughs> yeah yes. very inclusive form of the word guys <laughs> <laughs> the old beating up the young yeah. yes Okay. Isn't that oh. nice? Yeah, it's like shamwas again. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Oh, so many patterns. Mm. Very good. Beat up the young people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a good message. <laughs> a terrible no. message. No, but it's like, you know, I, I guess maybe the better message is that Harris and Sparrows respect their elders and don't pick fights with them. Nice. Or fear their elders. <laughs> One of the two. Yes. Maybe both. For some people, respect is the same as fear. Yeah. I don't think that's accurate, but some people do view it that way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. What? I'm wondering if there's any behavioral things that are going on too. Like, um, I've heard from horse people. I don't know if this is true. <laughs> you never people? know. What? Like, I feel like horse people make up stuff sometimes. Yeah. And like, it just keep like, everybody knows that that's the truth. But like, there's yeah. no science to back it up. Right. So that's my. Paris and Sparrow people are the same. Yeah. There's no science to back it up. Uh -huh. Except for the patches. We know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the one thing we know. Um, but horse people swear that like young horses will like do baby behaviors to like alleviate tension between like them and an elder horse around them. Oh. And I'm really curious like how common that is in other species. I feel like I've heard it I've heard, I feel like I've heard similar stories like in mammals in general. Mm -hmm. Um but like, are there any birds that do that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I do know that for Harris sparrows, the behaviors are mostly just avoiding them yeah. to like just avoid getting in fights. It's like, I see you over there. I know that like, if you get mad, I'm going to get beat up. So <laughs> I'm just going to avoid you altogether. It's a good strategy. It is a good strategy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, other stuff, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever see someone who could beat you up, just avoid them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's presumptuous. 
Just presume everyone's going to beat you up and avoid <laughs> it's, everyone. It's a good way to stay out of trouble. That's a great way <laughs> to guess. stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, both of you could beat me up, so should I avoid you? No, please don't. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Oh, my God. Um, if you're a Harris Sparrow, that's a good way to go about life, though, I guess, because, yeah. you know, when a squirrel can take you out, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta look out for other You're threats. acting like a squirrel is not a vicious creature. They are. <laughs> they will eat baby birds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A squirrel could probably beat me up. It would take one good bite to take me out, you know. I mean, like that's fair. <laughs> rodent rodent bites are no joke. Like they will bite you down to the bone and yes. leave you with permanent nerve damage. Yes, so. exactly. It's okay. But like ground squirrels aren't they? Aren't they like significantly smaller? Do you think a prairie squ- dogs are a ground squirrel? But you're right. The ones yeah. that we're talking about are are smaller. Mm-hmm. But feisty. I would not fight a prairie dog. <laughs> Yeah, have you seen their little, their little claws? Yeah. We know somebody with a scar from a prairie dog. Dang. Yeah. We do? Yeah. You do? We, we do. We do? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice prairie dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Oh, mm. God. <clears throat> anyway. It's, it's probably the prairie dog I'm thinking of, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. did it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. for sure. Yeah. No one told me that she was sometimes not nice until she was in my lap. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah just touch her mouth. Greet her. Greet her. No. <laughs> no. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like I'm being told to go casually feed the coyote and nothing will happen again. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, anyway. Hmm. So um, as far as the love lives of Harris's sparrows, we actually have a lot of holes here, too, but we do know some information. Um, They're, quote, observed to be monogamous. Again, no further studies to see if that's true. No DNA analyses or whatever. So we're just like, uh, we they look monogamous. Mm-hmm. Um, mate guarding isn't studied. No courtship displays have been reported. We think that they probably don't stay together across years. But again, that's based on very limited data. So that would be like seasonally monogamous. Like they form pairs on the breeding grounds. And we do know that at least in Manitoba and the Northwest Territories where these studies were conducted, that both sexes arrive up north at the same time approximately, which not all birds do. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody gets there first. But they all kind of arrive at the same time and they start to pair off within like seven days of arriving as long as there's no bad weather, because bad weather that far north really sets your whole summer back. So that that does affect everything that they're doing. You know, we said that it's not winter just because it's north, but it is winter for longer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's True. an effect. Um, and we also know a little bit about their nests and stuff. So I mentioned this already, but they, they do build their nests on the ground. They make like a scrape sunken into the ground usually under shelter and they're constructing that little nest uh with like mosses twigs sedges and grasses so it's a pretty standard like ground nesting sort of situation there where they build the nest but again the construction has never been observed we've just seen them carrying materials and that's it and what (laughs) (laughs) so i'm sorry hold on like they've they We've found nests. Okay, all right. Was... We've never seen them building them. Mm-hmm. They just kind of find them later, and they're like, "Oh, there it is." <laughs> right. Okay. It just it blows my mind. I know. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Hmm. Um, there is some distinct division of labor with the birds, but like the father will help throughout the rearing process. He sticks around. Typical socially monogamous stuff. And once the young are reared out of the nest, we once again lose information about them. We don't know when the young migrate, if it's different from the adults, what those patterns look like, the timing. Um, We do know that the first year these birds are alive, they do not return to the site where they were born. So that means we don't know what happens to them. We don't know how many of them survive. We have, again, very little population data anyway. But, like, you know, once they're out of the nests, like, we completely lose track of those birds forever. Hmm. And it's just a mystery from then on. Makes sense. Those hatchier birds are terrified of getting beaten up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way they expand mm-hmm. the species. Yeah. <laughs> by kicking the young birds out of their territory. Well, they, I mean, they 
do form mixed flocks with young birds in them. So the young birds do hang out. They're just cautious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they just, they avoid conflict based on throat patches of the older birds, you know, but they hang out together. They just, yeah, no sight fidelity. So once the birds are gone, they're gone and who knows. Hmm. No sight, even among adults. Or that's not. I don't know if that's known. Um, I just know that uh, the the first year birds, they know the first year birds don't return. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I don't know if the adults have any sight fidelity. Weird. Yeah. I mean, they are like making brand new partnerships every year too. So. Yeah. They're certainly not reusing the same nests. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. all those all those factors, I can see how it makes it very difficult to hammer some of this stuff down. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So the only thing we know about those birds once they leave is that they turn up in the South Central Plains at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Massachusetts or Florida if they get real confused. Um, and uh, we know the habitats they pick there. That they like shrubby, slightly succeeded prairie areas and bird feeders. And that they fill the air with really beautiful, pure high notes. And that they grace us with their presence very openly, despite being so freaking enigmatic up north. And uh, I think the more I like sit and think about how like absolutely wild that is, the more it's like, man, what a cool thing that we get to have right here. Yeah. Like, that's so cool. That these little birds, these mysterious enigmatic birds, just grace us with their presence like it's nothing. <laughs> it is. And this is like, and it, kind of the theme of your episode here is migration. And that mm-hmm. is one of the fun things to think about. It's like, while they're here, you sort of take them for granted. Yes. And it's like, you're not really considering with a migratory species, the other half of its life history mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something completely different like with purple martins it's always interesting to think about how like yeah they're here and you know but then they go to the amazon rainforest right <laughs> yeah. like and which is like a crazy like it's crazy it, to think of like it, it, you know, yeah it is it, and i it's think such a huge context shift and it, it mm-hmm. gives you a, a much broader appreciation for the species i think yeah mm-hmm. and i've always thought especially being in a place like kansas which is you know very much like flyover country and not interesting it's so wild how many overlaps we have between birds that are very much tropical species like deeply exotic species taken out of the context of where they are when they're here Mm. and also arctic species and for the harris's sparrow it's you know always so wild to think about how connected the tundra and the arctic is to us it's it's not like a faraway mysterious place that's not going to have impacts on us when climate change obliterates it, you know, like it, <laughs> 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 not sorry to take it into a dark place, but it's like, you know, like this it really birds have this way of making faraway issues very close to home. Sure. Because they are directly impacted by it and we're directly impacted by them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. That was beautiful. <laughs> that was a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Um, I also think it's really fun to think about those ties in those environments where it's like, hey, they are kind of using the same types of spaces up yeah. north. It's just instead of prairie, it's like tussock tundra of like sedges and stuff and grasses mm-hmm. with, you know, instead of cedars, <laughs> it's right. spruce and pine and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and open spaces feel like open spaces to those birds. Like they don't care that technically, like is is tussock tundra where it's mostly sedges technically a grassland? They don't care. It looks the same to them and they use it the same way that they use the tall grass prairie here. Yeah. You know, like that's freaking neat. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought to compare a somewhat poorly managed <laughs> grassland here. So like, oh, this is ideal habitat yeah. for it's yeah. it's like the boreal tundra transition zone mm-hmm. up north. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. Isn't that wild it's to really think about? Cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it. Um, yeah. So I guess um that's kind of my conclusion for this species. And I love these tie-ins and I wish we had more information because if this species is declining, like those are two environments that are hard to connect 
especially when it comes to human activities. And it's hard for us to know where the environment is failing these birds when we have so little information about it. And it's like, hey, really far north, there's probably not that many direct human impacts because like no people are, uh, or very few people are up there compared to the South Central Plains. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's hard for us to know what to do for them, which is scary. And I think highlights how wild it is to me that we still have so much to learn about such a common feeder bird in our area. Um, And that's kind of amazing. We always have more stuff to learn, but this is extra pointed. Um, And my, my final conclusion point is just that it's really fun sometimes just to like sit down and like fully appreciate these little things that we have and also to appreciate how habitats really aren't straightforward and perfect and that some animals like it that way. Yeah. Go appreciate birds more now while you can before they leave. Go. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Migration, not (laughs) all birds are going to die soon. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Hold on to them while you can. They're slipping away from you. Because they're moving elsewhere. Yeah. That's what yep. I meant. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's yep. The yep. Reason. yep. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you live in the Iowa, Nebraska border area down through Texas, mm-hmm. look for Harris's sparrows and be like, whoa, you little enigma. Give me your secrets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice throat patch. You could you could sure beat a young guy up. <laughs> Amazing. The wow. end. The end. Well, thanks, Rachel. That was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you, listener, for listening to The Best Biome. The Best Biome is produced by our nonprofit, Grass and Groupies, dedicated to inspiring... Why did your voice change? I don't know. <laughs> the conservation of grasslands. <laughs> I was just getting really into that narrator voice. Oh, yeah. yeah I don't yeah. know. It just felt right. Um, but I lost it now. I don't know what it sounded like. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, tell your friends about us and leave us a review. We couldn't do this without your support. We have a brand new way that you can support us now as well. We have merch. merch. We have two very, very beautiful uh, shirts that Rachel designed. One has our podcast logo on it. The other has grass and groupies with a bunch of beautiful wildflowers in the background. They're both gorgeous. It Get your shirts. Flora of the tall grass prairie specifically. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Please um, buy ourself. Buy our merch. Mm-hmm. And hug a Harris Sparrow. Hug with your eyes. Sparrow, with your eyes. Stay away from the ones that look grizzled. Yes. No, admire them. Admire them. But they'll be perfect. But do not mess with them. And know that it doesn't matter how much testosterone is behind those little little eyes. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Only the throat patch. It's all in the presentation. Yeah. Appearances are the only thing that matters. <laughs> <And> just <laughs> take this time... Because it is your last chance to see them. Don't miss this opportunity. Yeah. You will regret it.